0: hello and welcome on the barricades my name is bujan stanislavski and i'm one of the co-hosts of this show the other co-host dr maria chernat is currently vacationing uh, so i'll be here alone or actually not exactly alone because uh, recently i had the honor of interviewing two prominent uh, us peace activists media benjamin founder of code pink uh, women against war uh, and author of a recently published book on the war in ukraine uh, and Anne Wright, a former US State Department official who resigned in protest uh against the war in Iraq. Uh what struck me most during this long conversation was I think the the emotion, the passion and uh the seriousness of commitment uh both Medea and Anne have for opposing US imperialism and advocating for peace and understanding and diplomacy. And now for the interview, it's divided into three parts, each of which is equally interesting. Okay, so let's start with what brought you to Europe. What was it?
1: Well, we came for a conference in Vienna that we have been planning for a couple of months to bring people from, particularly from Europe, but also from U.S., Canada, and the Global South together to talk about how can we build a movement for peace in Ukraine. We know that there are leaders of countries like Uh, the president of Brazil, now the president of South Africa and other African nations, the Pope, uh, who are trying to promote peace talks. But we really feel that this needs to come from below, and it needs to come from the NATO countries. The pressure has to come from us. So this was an attempt to come together, to learn together, to talk together, and to Uh, put out a a call, which we're doing now for the end of September and early October, for actions around the world calling for peace talks and negotiations.
0: Right, so that's very interesting and you don't get to hear much about that in the media. Uh, So I wonder if you could uh, speak a little bit about the organizers or how how did it all come about? I believe the conference has got to be a result of, like, preparations, months of preparations. So who participated? uh, What were the most, uh, like, if you can maybe tell us the most important leaders uh, uh, or participants in that conference? Uh, How about that?
1: Well, the original ones were the International Peace Bureau, which is an old, very old uh, uh, peace organization that is based in... Berlin right now, but it covers not only Europe, but the the global south as well. And then uh, a coalition in the United States called Peace in Ukraine, which uh, is a group of about 100 different organizations. Uh, My organization, Code Pink Women for Peace, started that coalition. And then another group that was very actively involved is the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, also known by the acronym WILF. And they have a lot of Uh, chapters in different countries. Uh, Those were some of the key organizations. And of course, we couldn't have done it without Austrian peace groups uh, and research institutes and university professors who all uh, played an important role in getting the logistics uh, and in trying to get government support. And I think it's important to say that one of the main support was coming from the trade union movement, the Confederation of Trade Unions, which is the largest trade union in Austria, uh, who had offered us the place for free. Mm -hmm. And we were very excited and uh, planned all along to do it there until just two days before the event was to take place. uh, We got a notice that they got cold feet. Um, that they got very nervous because there was a lot of pressure on them, particularly from the uh, Ukrainian ambassador to Austria that was saying, this is a group of Putin apologists. Uh, These are people that you shouldn't be hosting. And that kind of pressure uh, made them back out at the last minute. We thought at one moment we were going to have to hold this conference in a public square. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But luckily we found a... A lovely place, it was a concert hall, uh, to hold the event. And uh, another example of the backlash we felt was that the uh, the uh, press club that was going to host the press conference when the, uh, the um, conference ended also pulled out, yeah. and we had to then do that in a café. Uh, but despite the backlash and the attempts to try to cancel the whole event, It went forward uh, in, I would say, great success in that the panels were very interesting. There was some diversity of opinion, but everybody came together knowing that uh, what brought us together was we don't think there's a victory on the battlefield. We think there needs to be a ceasefire and negotiations. And then within that, there were lots of differences about how that might possibly take place, what it could look like, uh, what concessions would have to be made. And the other thing I think it's important to mention is that there was uh, a panel as well as participation from Ukrainians and Russians, uh, but they got a lot of backlash for participating before it started and then even afterwards. And in fact, we had to offer some particular protection for some of the people who participated. All of this is to say that it is just a terrible state of affairs when there is a war raging and talk about peace is considered subversive, is considered treasonous, uh, is considered an apologist for uh, a regime invaders, that we condemn yeah. for their invasion. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, that's amazing, but that's actually council culture at its purest, I suppose. Right? This is this is uh, this is it. Uh, and then you know, when you mentioned the trade unions, I think that's extraordinary that they were actually even prepared. To host it, because in Poland I can I can quite imagine this this even happening. This is like anyone who steps out, like even one centimeter, mirror, regardless of like to which direction, out of uh, from the mainstream, they get uh, very severely repressed. And uh, it's uh, it's amazing that you know in a NATO well no Austria is not in NATO but in a European country in a Central European Western European country you were able to actually get together so many people and despite the kind of obstacles you were able to actually carry out the whole event. Yeah, I just want to say
1: one you know let's remember that Austria is a neutral country and that's one of the reasons a, a major reason why we chose it. And the other thing to recognize is that in some of the European countries and particularly in Italy. The trade unions are very much behind uh, this movement for peace. Uh, in fact, it's Italy is the country that has had the largest demonstrations mm-hmm. for peace, over 100,000 people yeah. out in the streets. And that's precisely because there is a long history of the Catholic Church, the peace movement, and the trade unions working together. Of
0: course, I think even in Eastern Europe, and this is being wildly, widely dismissed all over uh, the media, we've had demonstrations, significant demonstrations, 100,000, even over 100,000, I think, in Czech Republic last year and this year. Uh, We have repeated uh, demonstrations in Bulgaria, the country where I come from, uh, every well every two weeks or every three weeks something like that marches for peace and stability and again no reflection in the you know international media whatsoever uh and of course there are demonstrations in Serbia Moldova like again countries we don't hear much from so but but anyway i i think it's absolutely remarkable that you were able to make this international event and uh, you know despite all those problems that you faced to actually carry it out and i wonder what was the reception because Apart from the people who participated in the very conference, then you said you had press conference afterwards. and what was the reception? what what questions were asked like how people actually received the?
1: Well, Anne was a major uh, featured speaker, both <laughs> on the panels that was about diplomats because of her history and also at the press conference. Mm-hmm.
2: I as a retired u s Army colonel and a former u s diplomat who resigned over a war twenty years ago in two thousand three. I resigned from the U.S. government in opposition to Bush's war on Iraq. So for the last 20 years, I've been uh, asked to speak at various uh, peace events, anti-war events. And so I was honored to uh, get an invitation to speak at this conference. And um, my one of the plenary sessions that I spoke on was on ceasefires, how you get to a ceasefire so that you can then go forward with some sort of um, agreement to stop the killing. Now the main things I think all of us want is the killing to stop. We are uh, aghast and horrified at the numbers of people that have been killed uh, in Ukraine, primarily, but also in, in Russia. And so trying to get the 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 wars to end, the battles to end, so the killing won't stop is kind of the main purpose of the ceasefire. So talking about ceasefires, but how long it takes to get an agreement on a ceasefire. And one of the things I spoke about was uh, during the Korean War, 70 years ago, it took two years, and it was only a three-year war, but it took two of those years, 575 meetings between the North Korean, South Koreans, the U.S., the U.N. command, to finally come up with an armistice.
0: All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, your uh, your panel. Uh, how do you how do you get to a ceasefire in a situation like that, uh, where there seem to be no incentives for a ceasefire? Uh, Russia will not probably suggest ceasefire because they seem to be actually winning on the battlefield. No matter that we feel that there can be no victory, final victory on the battlefield, they seem to be on the they seem to be winning. And they seem to be very confident. Uh, on the other hand, we have NATO or Ukraine slash NATO, uh, which uh, doesn't seem to be interested in any kind of ceasefire because it would lose a lot of credibility, face, mm-hmm. prestige. And uh, we seem to be in a conflict which is really a matter of life and death for both sides. Like in terms of the security guarantees for Russia that it needs to now fight for in, uh, in, in the fields of Ukraine. And then on the other side, NATO, which risks pretty much everything, its own existence, if it actually loses in a way that media are not able to pro- portray as some kind of victory. So how do you get to a ceasefire in a situation like that? Is, is 600 meetings going to be enough?
2: Well, who knows? I mean, it may be a horrific incident that happens that finally the leaders of both countries or the leader of one set of, whether it's U.S., NATO, uh, Ukraine... Whether it's the Russian Federation, one of those entities may finally say, "This was enough. We've got to stop this and make um, overtures toward the other." Yeah. But, okay. But the, but and I'll just mention if you look back at another war, in uh, the Vietnam War, uh, the U.S. Uh, started negotiations with the North North uh, Vietnamese in 1968. 1968. Uh, a peace agreement was not signed in Paris till 1973. And during that time, the U.S. increased the level of, of bombing of North Korea, um, of North Vietnam. They started blowing, bombing uh, uh, Cambodia, Laos. I mean, it was horrible. More casualties happened during that period. And that could certainly happen here. But at a certain point, the U.S. got pressure from its own citizens saying this has gone on way too long we've already lost 50,000 which was minor compared, compared to how to many the, yeah. Vietnamese were killed
0: yeah and also compared to the casualties of this war thus far i yeah. mean it's been yeah. horrendous right so uh, i wonder about uh, what about this pressure internal pressure is there are there any signs out there uh, kind of um creating uh, like making us Feel that there are perhaps some prospects for this kind of movement or of this scale that could actually put pressure on the American government because they all seem to be like NATO and of course the United States as the political leader of NATO they seem to be absolutely hell bent on you know Ukraine must win and they keep repeating that and I tend to my observation is that they they seem to be to believe their own sort of concepts propaganda whatever you want to call it and uh, and. And what you mentioned about leaders coming to, 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 to conclude that, okay, that was enough. We've had that in May or April last year. Haven't we had that? The meetings in Minsk, then in Ankara, in Istanbul. Uh, and and uh, quite recently, I think Vladimir Putin actually uh, showed to the press the documents that were actually signed. And after they were signed, the Ukraine side was made to back down the, and, and, and uh, depart from the whole deal. So uh, obviously, we're talking about a situation where ceasefire is almost out of the, out of the the, the you know, uh, the scope of. Um...
2: Well, it may be right now out of the scope of of your thoughts. Yeah. But that was one of the reasons that we had this conference: mm-hmm. is that people of conscience have to have to continue to talk about the need to stop the killing, the need to have peace, and that's where you have the global south coming in saying. We're not even a part of this, but we can see objectively this is terrible. And we urge you, urge you, please beg of you to stop this killing. So while there may not be specific things that are happening between U.S., NATO, Ukraine, and then the Russian Federation, there are influences that are coming in from all sides, which hopefully will have some impact.
1: Yeah, I would want to add a couple of things. One is let's not minimize the importance of the Chinese Mm -hmm. and how much leverage they have both on Russia and on Ukraine for being the number one trading partner of both of them. (laughs) I mean, it's quite remarkable how important China is. And uh, the other is um, the support for the war in Ukraine, I would say in the United States, and I don't know in Europe, but I would venture to say the same, is about an inch deep. I mean, people say, oh yes, we want to support Ukraine. They used to put their flags out and everything. Now they don't talk about it. They don't care about it. Uh, the opinion polls keep showing more and more people just want to see an end to that conflict. And um, so you see this tremendous uh, chasm between what the politicos, what the people in power are saying and doing, whether it's in the U.S. or in other native, NATO countries, and what the people think. And this shows a lack of real respect for democracy. It shows that, um, that these are, this is a political war. And so when you look at the United States, you have to recognize we're coming up to a presidential election. Yeah. And that I feel in so many ways that the poor Ukrainian people and the poor Russian soldiers are dying because Biden needs a win for his reputation and his presidential campaign.
0: If it can can be saved, I mean, his reputation. I mean, by the amount of memes that are going out, only that (laughs) is is, is kind of enough. Right.
1: But, you know, as this as this uh, uh, election season moves on, Uh, the Democrats are going to be in a very difficult position if they can't point to any uh, victories in Ukraine and uh, Republican and other Democratic challengers start coming forward, as they are right now, saying this war doesn't make sense and this is Biden's war. And so if you put a number of those different things together while a ceasefire might not look feasible right this minute, I think it things could change very quickly.
0: Well, yeah, I guess it's of course possible. Although there are many people who who, um, who are of the opinion that this war could actually last for decades ahead because none of the sides will you know, will want to to actually uh, back down.
2: I think they're going to run out of ammunition.
0: Yeah, that's that, that's actually <laughs> that's, the only hope. You know, yeah. That's the only hope that well, they're going to run out of the
2: <laughs> the military supplies of the United States. Apparently, are dwindling. Uh, we don't have the industrial complex left in the United States to ratchet up the amount of ammunition that you need in order to continue to supply the Ukrainian military. The U.S. Um, military uh, complex, industrial complex, is not geared up to start manufacturing in large numbers uh, the amount that we're that that is being expended right now in Ukraine uh although i think they're they're starting it up because they want to have a supply for a potential war in china
0: yeah exactly Tragically. I mean, this is the most uh this is a, really a, a a horrendous prospect because now they seem to be losing one proxy war uh, in uh, in ukraine then they want to open another front with china maybe with iran i mean this is really this, this really sounds like uh something which is terribly unhinged. well
2: you you have blinken though who just this week has gone to china and that's the first first overture really that we've had uh, uh, in quite a while. So
1: yeah, I think they're starting to realize that they'd better not open up a war with China at a time when we've run out of munitions. Oh. You know? <laughs> uh, and so this, in a sense is you know, one positive silver lining is perhaps it's a time for more cooperation with China. And I also think it's important to recognize that within the United States, there is also a difference between uh, some of the people who are making the policy right now, like in the National Security Council and in the, in the White House, uh, and people in the Pentagon who have been the cooler heads.
0: Uh, That's amazing. Yeah. What an irony that now we have to trust, you know, the military. The we don't, we, we don't
1: have to trust them. What we see is in documents that were leaked. Yeah. Uh, it's not that they came out and said this. I mean, yes, the chair of the Joint Chief of, of Staffs uh, at one point said w- we should seize the moment and and Ukraine should go for negotiations.
0: Yeah. But, but he had to leak it. He was not able to say that. You know, no, probably. he
1: said it publicly oh, twice. He's yeah. okay, he okay, said okay. it publicly, okay. yeah. But then there were these leaked documents. Uh, and the leaked documents is where we see the reality of the situation, mm-hmm. which says that... The Russians have a lot of problems with uh, their everything from their logistics and communications and and weapons supply. But the Ukrainians have the same problems and uh, saying that if there is some success in this counter offensive, it's not going to be enough to make any significant change in the battlefield. And so you see these leaked documents, you understand that the Pentagon knows what's going on. Um, and. Uh, that despite that, though, we have these neocons uh, in the policy-making positions, and then you have the Republican hawks who are egging Biden on and saying, "Why are you not doing more? You're just hemming and hawing. You're not. Mm-hmm. You're not going all in to help the Ukrainians." You're just, you know, stepping your toe in and giving a little bit of munitions here, a little bit of, you know, F-16s, a little bit of tanks. You should, you know, give it your all. So there are these, div- these very different pressures and, and divisions that are going on, but they're shifting very quickly.
2: And I would just add to that, that having been in the U.S. military for 29 years, the, the level of influence, I mean, wars don't start because the U.S. military wanted them. They start because the political leaders of the United States want them to start. And then they tell the military to go ahead and implement war plans that, of course, the military has. I mean, the military has a war plan for everything, but they don't make the decisions on it. So it's the neocons. It's the it's, you know, whatever war hot group that happens to be in power that makes the decision. And many times behind the scenes, the military is warning We don't have this. We don't have that. We don't. We're not ready for this. We're not ready for that. And they're told, unlike Donald Rumsfeld, in going into Iraq, you go in with whatever you have. If you don't have enough stuff, that's too bad.
0: Okay, but the Iraq war is somewhat different from this one in in many uh, aspects, actually. And I think it's important to draw the differences here. The war in Iraq had some clear economic objectives, like you know the oil, the resources, the uh, saving of the. uh, Uh, or or preventing Saddam Hussein from departing from the dollar. You know, there are many uh, clear, rather clear objectives, clearly defined. Whereas here, I can't see much, much apart from ideological obsession that we just have to take down Russia. We just have to do that for reasons which I don't quite understand. Like, what is the problem with Russia? How is Russia threatening in any way? How, How it was threatening, how it has been threatening maybe? the United States, or even their imperialist interests, I just don't quite see. The only thing that Russia seems to have requested all along was don't expand NATO, adhere to the promises that you made, And that was it. And today, when I hear people like Jeffrey Zatz, who come up with n- new revelations that back in 1992, plans were actually made to include uh, uh, Ukraine Ukrainian NATO, then I come to think that, yeah, it's just ideological obsession, uh, and, and Russia derangement syndrome. I can't see anything else. Can you? No. <laughs> to, uh... <laughs> okay. I, totally sure. I mean,
2: when you look at it objectively, why in the world uh, would this be going on? I mean, other than the the Russian Federation had, had said there are red lines, mm-hmm. and uh, the the U.S. and NATO just kept going over the red lines, over them, over them, over them. And uh, as, as Medea has identified in her book so well, all of the the U.S. government officials, starting back in the nineteen nineties, uh, uh, had been saying to the U.S. government, no matter what administration it, it was, don't cross these red lines. I mean, yet is yet.
0: Is exactly, right. that was Robert Kennan, I think. No, it was yeah. Bill
2: Bill Burns. Uh, Bill Burns when okay, he was yeah. the U.S. ambassador to conscience. to Moscow. Yeah. But Kennan years before had you know said similar sorts mm-hmm. of things. But it was yet it. It means net, was was the title of his diplomatic cable right. back to Washington. But I, I think there are economic
1: factors that we shouldn't discard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I go into a lot of congressional hearings and going into hearings years ago when uh, there were senators from Texas, like Ted Cruz, who would be hammering the administration and saying, why are you allowing this Nord Stream pipeline to be built? I didn't even know what the Nord Stream Pipeline was and seeing uh, and so I had to go research. What is this? And then why would Ted Cruz be so obsessed with the Nord Stream Pipeline? Well, now you understand. It was because uh, the Texas oil companies and the gas companies wanted to be the ones to uh, supply Europe with the energy and not Russia. And so you see with the blowing up of this pipeline and the sanctions against Russian energy, the oil companies in Texas and throughout the United States, but they're mainly based in Texas, have had profits that they've never seen before. Their profits in twenty twenty two were off the charts.
0: The interesting thing about it is that Russia's oil companies and gas companies, their profits are also going through the roof because you know, apparently they sell now to China, to India, to Saudi Arabia, to Qatar, and then those countries they subsequently resell that oil to Europe. So we've sanctioned ourselves in a very strange manner, basically because we now buy the same Russian gas or same Russian, you know, oil only through uh, through other countries. Through,
1: but the other um, consequence, uh, which is a long term consequence for in the U.S. is that the war has been used as an excuse to expand licenses for production of oil and gas and refineries in the United States. So the work of a lot of environmental movements over years to try to stop this, then when the war happened, Biden was then, okay, now we have to help our brothers and sisters in Europe. And so So, I think it's an important uh, economic factor to take in mind that's not going to end when the war ends, uh, because there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Europeans to keep buying um, uh, energy from the United States. So, that's one factor. And let's also not forget that war does make a lot of money for some very powerful companies the weapons manufacturers, the companies that have contracts with the Pentagon. And in Europe, you know better than I do how there's been a real tension between the pressure from the United States uh, to tell the NATO countries to spend more of their GDP on weapons and the people's needs who've been saying, wait, we want healthcare. we want education, we don't want that. Well, now that's opened up. And so there's powerful companies not just in the United States but throughout Europe now who see this as a tremendous opportunity to produce and sell more weapons. So there are economic interests.
0: Yeah. So what about the uh, the, the military industrial complex in the United States? I guess their their profits and the prospects for f- uh, future profits. Uh, this is really their moment because. The entire equipment uh, that's been used by NATO armies in Europe, I mean, most of it is burning or has burnt in uh, the fields of Ukraine, uh, on the fronts of the Ukrainian war. So now, obviously, those countries like Poland, for example, where we're um, recording this video today, they're going to have to rearm, and of course they're going to be buying from where? from From the United States. So I suppose this is another kind of, uh you know, a major investment on the part of the military industrial complex, right? In, Indeed, in the
2: it is. Yeah. yeah, and those companies are uh, taking good advantage of it. From their perspective, they they are uh, really holding the U.S. government kind of uh, by the neck, mm. uh, and they're getting sole source contracts. They're demanding that. The intellectual property to create certain types of things remains with them, not with the U.S. government. So it's a, it's a situation where the, the, the companies are making a killing uh, and are, are putting themselves in a position where uh, they really have the U.S. government over the barrel on a on a variety of issues.
0: And for them it doesn't matter who
2: wins the war or when. You no,
1: know, what is important for them is that the war keeps going. going. And there was an expose that in the US television that showed that these companies are now getting forty
2: percent profits. Wow. It's huge profits. Yeah, you know, sixty minutes. Yeah. I think did a did a special, well half of half of an hour special that was really, really interesting about how all of these big companies are taking advantage of the wars.
0: Yeah, but they're not really interested in the political perspective of it, right? Because uh, you know, if there was a bit a pinch of rational thought in the whole thing, then it actually this reckless act of imperialism basically brings the end of the empire closer rather than uh you know, expanding the, the, the life of of the empire itself. What I'm trying to say is that a major defeat in Ukraine could actually be the symbolic beginning of the end of the empire and those companies they're not going to be very happy about that
1: yeah but let's remember it was russia that invaded so you know the the while the us provoked and nato provoked it was russia that invaded and these companies are now taking advantage Mm -hmm. of the situation and i think also of course nato is because uh nato did not have a very good reputation before this war and those weapons manufacturers didn't either because Mm -hmm. You know they lost. Uh, the U.S. and NATO lost wars constantly, and so now they have the image of they're promoting democracy. They are the faces of uh, uh, of um, positive uh, support for uh, victims of an invasion. Um, so I think they have gained a lot out of this.
0: Mm-hmm. So you think that uh, thanks to this PR, like constant. PR stunts that we are facing like almost every day, uh, that it could actually this interpretation that I just uh, floated here could be uh, could not be such a you know such a such an important element in the whole thing.
1: Well, I think that in the uh, more long run, what we're seeing is a major shift of in geopolitics and how uh, even before this war that was happening where the U.S is not the uh, sole superpower. And we see China being so important and almost ready to overtake US uh, economically, and also the uh, configuration of the countries that are part of the BRICS uh, now representing a larger global output than uh, the Western uh, Europe and the United States represent. So uh, that shift is happening. I think you're right in that it speeds it up Um, To the extent that uh, we see so many countries in the global South, particularly Africa, Latin America, um, who recognize the hypocrisy of all of this. And I think you're seeing a bigger division between the U.S., uh, Europe and its sphere, which is smaller and smaller, uh, and... Uh, those who don't want to be forced to take sides in a proxy oh, Yeah, okay,
0: that, that's, that's, of course, understandable. But then, you know, I think that this division, decoupling, whatever you want to call it, I mean, I, it started quite a long time ago. We only now see this reaction on the part of America, and this is how I see it, at least, uh, which, you know, there's a... which looks quite desperate. Like, in the final aftermath, you throw yourself into a proxy war with Russia... And regardless of the fact that technically speaking, of course, you're right, like Russia invaded and, you know, we should not whitewash, you know, uh, this responsibility. But uh, this this really, there really seems to be something, um, something reckless about it, something that I've not seen so far, you know, being a rather careful observer of international affairs on the part of the United States in the sense that they've thrown themselves into something everybody i mean the biggest strategist of american imperialism like uh even kissinger saying like don't do this this is really i mean you're you're going way over the top you're not going to be able to handle this right uh and and yet they 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 still went ahead and did it so th- it really smells of desperation smells of something something profoundly irrational i would say more than
1: desperation
0: it's hubris mm. it's
1: You know, the U.S. got itself in these wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan. I mean, imagine losing a war in Afghanistan. (laughs) It's insane. And yet you still think that you can win. Uh, And so I think that's the kind of imperial hubris is to think that uh, even after it's been shown, especially in these last 20 plus years, um, that the U.S. just keeps losing and losing. um, The narrative is that we don't lose. Mm. (laughs) Uh, and so we might as well throw ourselves into the next war um, because it, it it's a chance to show how powerful we are.
0: That's true. But don't you find that, you know, losing in Afghanistan in a, in a humiliating manner, okay? But losing in Afghanistan is something that doesn't threaten the very existence of the empire. I mean, this is okay. We've lost that war. We had to evacuate, whatever. I mean, people are going to forget about it because the news cycle 24-7 and so on and so forth. Whereas here... You know, this is, I feel, you know, maybe I'm wrong, like I'm, I'm not really an expert, but I feel that it could be different. I mean, it could be, it could really be a major blow. You can already see countries in Africa, in Latin America, that demonstrate we don't fear you anymore. We don't fear any consequences that America is going to come down on us and, you know, crush us or something. So uh, do you find, Did you see any logic in what I'm talking about? Uh, I'm well,
2: that. I think the empire itself doesn't see any logic at all. They their their view is we're doing the right thing, we're fine. Uh, you know, we go after whatever we want, we'll we'll succeed. Um, but you know, the, the reality is that it it's showing its uh, the the wear and tear on these these types of ideas that you can just go in and have a war place and and challenge something like another superpower like Russia mm. uh, and get away with it. And you're seeing, you're not getting away with it. And that there's a, there's a price to be paid. And while it's the Ukrainian people that are paying the price. The biggest price, right? The, the, the political
0: price. price is also being yeah. paid by the United States, as I said. I'm- like how the governments not fearing them anymore.
1: That's right. I mean, if you compare Iraq with the coalition of the willing, what was it like 40 countries that were put together? You know, you just twist their arms and say, you know, if you don't do this, you won't be getting this or that or whatever. Uh, now and you can only do that now with Poland. <laughs> You can't do that anymore, and it is quite remarkable to see even close U.S. allies like India Mm -hmm. that say, no, actually, we're looking out for our own interest. And um, so I think that is a remarkable shift. I mean, Saudi Arabia, Arabia, which was like, you know, had this incredible relationship with the United States for decades now, suddenly turns around and says, you can't tell us what to do. We're... Mm -hmm. uh,
0: yeah, we're gonna moment. we're gonna restore relations with Iran, right? Yeah. All, all, all yeah.
1: Sense. So yes, you're right in that sense that it is a moment when countries see mm, uh, this country or this empire is not so powerful anymore. Um, we don't have to do what the U.S. says. On the other hand, let's not also pretend that US sanctions haven't had a horrific impact and continue to have a horrific impact in countries around the world and are killing people everywhere. We work a lot with uh, our uh, uh, colleagues in places like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, even Iran, which is a much bigger country uh, and these sanctions really do kill and they do affect. And the U.S. in its desperate years of a declining empire mm. um, continues to use that uh, as a cudgel. And a lot of countries are now saying, well, we're just going to get off the dollar. Mm. But in the meantime, it's these smaller countries that are feeling the pain.
0: Again, I'd like to remind you that the Barricade is an independent media outlet based in Bulgaria, which I co-run with a colleague from Bucharest, uh, Dr. Maria Chernat. Whom I mentioned already. uh, Check out our website, our YouTube channel and our channels on Rumble and Odyssey. Our videos are also available on Substack where you can also find audio versions of our podcasts and articles. Our audio productions are also available on Spotify and SoundCloud. Uh, And one more important, I think, remark, none of our videos or audios are monetized. Uh, If you see an advertisement in the middle of the podcast, feel free to skip it, it doesn't help us in any way. If you believe our journalistic efforts are important and worthy of your support, then please consider subscribing to our channel, sharing with your friends and followers and making a one-off donation or purchasing a monthly subscription through Patreon or Substack. The description box contains all the necessary links. Uh, you can uh, also help to support our Eastern European independent journalism by using our media company, Nonstop Media, for all kinds of commercial purposes. Uh, we've worked in media reporting, design, video, audio, and text editing, publishing, translations, interpreting, event planning, and variety of other fields. Uh, We have fantastic specialists on board who can do amazing things with words and images. For more information, go ahead and visit our website at nonstopmedia.eu. Thank you.